The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Podcast for America, a new show from Panoply about the Hunger Games, also known as an American presidential campaign cycle. I'm Alex Wagner, host of MSNBC's Now with, well, me, Alex Wagner, here in New York City. Joining me from our dazzling DuPont Circle studio in Washington is New York Magazine contributing editor Annie Lowry and chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, Mark Leibovich. Hi, Annie and Mark. Hey. Hi. I, I'm smiling ear to ear because you are hosting us. <laughs> I'm <laughs> frowning ear to ear because I am hosting us. I do hope that everybody had a delightful Memorial Day weekend filled with hot dogs and good cheer. Also filled with hot dogs. Sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Full, filled with hot dogs and, and reverence for the armed services. Yes. Uh, absolutely. People and preparation for the for this podcast for America. Yeah, indeed. A whole three day weekend of reading. Mark's hardcore the pushes <laughs> uh, the push ups and the crunches and the very precise carb to uh, protein ratio is really gonna work out for our listeners today. Don't forget okay. about the fat. First up on today's episode, what happens when you've planned a three ring circus and twenty acts show up? That is how the Republican primary debates are shaping up as more and more fringe candidates want airtime while the front runners and the networks want them to go away. Then we are learning something about Hillary Clinton's management style and the ongoing role of the so-called Friends of Hillary from the release of emails she never wanted us to see. And then Rand Paul, the hardest working man in the Senate, stages another epic talkathon to protest the NSA's spying on our phone calls. What does the cynical political establishment make of a guy who actually seems to believe in something? And finally, a lightning round we're calling If I Were in Charge. I am in charge right now. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, topic number one. Fox News will host the first GOP debate of this election cycle on August 6th. If every semi-serious Republican who's running or threatening to run were to want a place on that stage, it could swell to 19 podiums and more crosstalk than Pat Buchanan's family reunion. So Fox is limiting the debate to the 10 candidates who are polling the highest based on an average of five recent polls. According to today's polls, that could exclude Rick Perry, Ohio Governor John Kasich, Rick Santorum, and the only woman on the GOP side so far, Carly Fiorina. But it would include Ben Carson, Mike Huckabee, and of course, the Donald. Special provisions always to include the Donald. So where do we stand on limiting early stage debates and what is going on behind the scenes here, Mark and Annie? Well, look, first of all, when you say that this early winnowing down has has eliminated Rick Perry and who else? Rick Santorum, whoever the two. I would call Carly that a, Fiorina. Carly Fiorina. Fiorina. I would call that a start. Um, <laughs> actually, maybe I shouldn't say that. Well, I just said it anyway. No, I, I think, look, I, I think what we are looking at, according to New York Magazine, is a crisis of stage management. Mm. Now, I, I disagree with the premise of that because crisis assumes and implies that this was an ideal situation to begin with, that all of these debates, these dozens of debates we are subjected to every four years are just these incredibly incredible festivals of ideas and these great <laughs> give and takes. They're not. They're terrible in most cases. And I would actually use this quote-unquote crisis as an opportunity to blow the whole format up and actually use the crowd, the overcrowding, as an advantage that actually we can have some fun with. 
What does that mean? Would there be a swimsuit competition? What exactly? Oh you my mean goodness, by, a talent show. Up? Yes. Oh, that would be Rick Perry. I mean, you have to have Rick Perry if you're going to have a talent show. Go ahead, mention the glasses. You know you want <laughs> the Jonathan Franzen glasses Jonathan were not on Franzen. stage <laughs> in the 2012 cycle. He is a different man, right. Leibovich. But I, I agree with Mark that we need to ask ourselves the existential question of why we go through these things at all and what we are expecting to get out of them. I think that they can be useful towards the end. I think that they can absolutely matter. But for the most part, they are useless and they do not matter. And even in terms of getting a better sort of bread and circus type ludicrous production, which as a journalist is all that I care about, I just want chaos, anarchy, racist comments, sexist <laughs> comments. I want I want the worst of these people. I want them to like unleash their lizard brains. But it's hard to listen to 20 people, right? Well, it's hard to listen to 10 people. It's going to be you could speak in so chorus. useless with 10 people. Well, first of all, what I would think about doing is I would mix up the parties. I mean, you have basically one very viable candidate on the Democratic side and, you know, arguably a dozen people who could emerge, maybe even more, on the Republican side. Stick like four or five Republicans and have them debate Hillary, right? I mean, you can keep Bernie Sanders. Well, and oh, wait, why don't you want to see like Rick Santorum and Bernie Sanders on a stage together? I do want to see I know I do. No, like, I do. That I is would, good TV. Yeah, I think no, this is them. what he's saying yes. is, is do cross-party yes, cross debates really, really early. This is a great idea. Make them smaller. Make them as psychotic as possible. This is wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> there, then there obviously needs to be a swimsuit competition. But yeah. let's just, I make mean, everybody the, the, do shots beforehand. The, the irony, though, I mean, the RNC wanted to tighten up the primary calendar. It wanted to limit the amount of wacky. It wanted to limit the amount of exposure that it, its people had in, in the primary process. And so, you know, it's ironic that at the first sort of initial bid, at, you know, the national stage, the GOP is in complete disarray because the party elders have no sway over saying over kingmaking at this point, And they can't say, hey, you know what? I am looking at the list. John Kasich or Rick Perry, who's definitely not going to advance to the final round. You shouldn't run. We need to we need to have party discipline. We need to get our ducks in a row and we need to focus our energies on the strongest candidate. Right. But I think it's worth thinking about what it would be worth for the RNC to have a debate with their four or five potential actual viable candidates. So meaning not the Donald, you know, would it really be better for them? And I, I mean this seriously to have Jeb Bush and Scott Walker and a couple other people up on the stage and debating, it would just be boring because they would all be so risk averse is probably what I think. Yeah, I also don't think that I mean, look, I, I why shouldn't Lindsey Graham, who's, you know, been in the Senate, he's a serious candidate or Rick Perry, who you know, has obviously run before, but he's a however many term governor of Texas. I mean, I, I don't I think that they all have a right to be here. I mean, I think that there are actually only a few candidates who are like, really? I mean, are you serious? Like I would put that in the Dennis Kucinich, Mike Gravel, maybe Carly Fiorino class. I mean, she, you know, it's probably worse last time around, actually, in terms of just Yahoo's coming out of the woodwork. Probably. Yeah. No, I, I think, well, you so. think last time was worse than this time. Well, well now I mean, now I'm just mulling this over. 19 <laughs> possible candidates. It is unworkable. But here's what you can do. Well, 19 like it, stated candidates is different than possible. Let's say the 12 of them run. I mean, say Fox wanted to be really, really baller here and say, look, 
we're not going to have a moderator. We're going to have you all ask questions of each other. We're going to do a Jeopardy round. We're going to do a <laughs> gotcha round. We're going to do this exactly the way we want to make this as entertaining and as informative as possible. And by the way, if you don't want to play by our rules, don't show up. we got plenty of you to begin with. I mean, you actually can use the incredible glut to your advantage by just saying, fine, you don't want to be here. We, you know, We're making the rules. Now, when you have fewer candidates, the candidates have more power because they can just say, no, we're not doing this. But now, I mean, look, you can pick and choose whoever wants to participate by these rules. Right. Mark, you bring up a good point, which is the best moments on the debate stage tend to happen when candidates sort of break the rules and start interacting with each other. That totally. moment, like in the last cycle, when Mitt Romney challenged Rick Perry to a $10,000 bet. Right. Exactly. Moment. Those moments, like if, <laughs> if we could have 17 more of those, then I have actually no hope in the American political process. I, I would find it, however, very entertaining. But, but the fact is that we actually have to really work to find those revealing moments. I mean, and, and this happens within what is ostensibly a very scripted context. I mean, we also had that unforgettable Rick Perry moment last time when he forgot the three government um, agencies he wanted, or no, departments he wanted to eliminate, the oops moment. But again, that was a scripted answer that he had probably recited about a million times before and probably would again. He just happened to have a brain lapse and he didn't do it. So I look, I would, again, if I were in charge, and I, that's a later thing, right? If that yes, you were in charge. You're allowed to say the phrase. I would this make point. this as freewheeling as possible. Here's one thing, and Annie, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. No matter what the criteria is, at, at this point, Fox is saying uh, it'll be polling and whoever is above a certain percentage. There is going to be hell to pay from the base, I think, for specific candidates. I mean, if you find yourself without the only female candidate mm -hmm. in the mix, Carly Fiorina, that's going to be drama for the GOP. I don't understand how you have a sort of winning criteria here that satisfies everybody or at least does, uh, that placates everybody. Not if it's a big debate, right? If if you have 10 people on stage and you've cut out the one woman or, you know, whoever else, then I think it's hard. If you have a small debate, it's only three, four people, then I, I don't think that it matters as much. But I do think that, that Mark brings up a good point, which is if you are a candidate on a stage with 11 other people, I think you have two competing impulses. So one is if you think that you're actually viable, you have a good fundraising thing going on, you're getting moving in your states that you think you need to win, there's probably an impulse to be as boring as possible. I think that this is going to be the Hillary Clinton impulse for a very long time. But if you're a candidate who is looking to stake some territory, who thinks that you have a good thing going on but needs a little attention, it's to do that, right? It's to engage other people. It's to say kind of crazy stuff. And and I guess the question is, you know, do you get that, that ladder uh, if you're somebody who's setting this up with more candidates or fewer and with whom? Well, I, I mean, I think fewer candidates probably. Yeah. Is so best, that they can right? cross talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seven is probably all the the max, I think, as far as a useful group. But, and there's always people who don't feel like they talk enough. I mean, it's just a broken format. I just don't like it to begin with. Okay. Well, Annie, you mentioned Hillary Clinton and maybe running on the boring platform for as long as possible. That may be a good transition. But before we get to our second topic, you should let us know what you think about who should take part in the primary debates and why. Email us at podcastforamerica at gmail.com or tweet us at podforamerica. Okay, so the second topic, deep tease. We got our first look last week at a handful of the 30,000 personal emails Hillary Clinton turned over to the State Department after Servergate, or whatever we're calling it. But already those emails are teaching us something about the former Secretary of State's management style. 
and probably of greatest interest to political Washington, the emails have resurfaced the name of, can you hear me smiling as I say this, Mark Leibovich, the name of Sidney Blumenthal, a Clinton loyalist so controversial that President Obama specifically outlawed Hillary Clinton from hiring Blumenthal at the State Department. So, Mark, let us start by reminding people who Sid Blumenthal is. Yes, I just called him Sid Blumenthal and why so (laughs) many people in Washington hate him. Well, Sid Blumenthal is is a guy who sort of has been around forever. I mean, he's a proxy for the kind of, you know, multi-decade sameness that I think is what gives so many people a headache about Clinton world resurfacing all over again. I mean, he is someone who has been uh, you know, he worked for the New Republic. He worked for the New Yorker. He's worked for any number of publications. He then, in the '90s, sort of fell into the thrall of the Clintons, became a friend of the Clintons, became you know among the tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of friends that Bill and Hillary have. Became very, very loyal. Became sort of a pit bull for them. Uh, did a lot of opposition research. So much that you know he he was you know extremely loyal to them, but also you know rubbed enough people the wrong way, i.e., the Obama campaign, that they wanted absolutely no part of him. So. I had a little personal experience with him in that he wrote a play apparently (laughs) in the early 90s called This Town. Uh, And I wrote a book by the same name a couple of years ago. And then Mike Allen, God bless him, um, when announcing that I had this book coming out called This Town, you know, he wrote this. And then like that day or the next day I come into work with an email forwarded from Jill Abramson, who was then the executive editor of the New York Times, sent by Sid Blumenthal with the subject head, Mark Leibovich, plagiarism. So this is not the kind of thing you want to see from your executive editor first thing in the morning. Uh, Apparently, he was all aggrieved that, you know, in naming the book This Town, I had plagiarized him and had written the same. I don't know. It was in the groundwater. Everything Sidney Blumenthal does, eventually, it gets wound into the DNA. Yeah, you you so loved his play that you had internalized it. Yes. Oh, dear. So anyway, he's a classic friend of the Clintons and the Obama pe- – he, he just won't go away. I mean, he's a cockroach and you cannot, you know, kill a guy like this. He will always resurface in a context like this. I guess what what is fairly unsurprising and yet still shocking and potentially dismaying is the fact that Sid Blumenthal was emailing Hillary Clinton a variety of emails about what was going on in Libya, some of it like wild conspiracy theories, some that did not stretch the imagination as far, but they were they were forwarded on to her people, including Jake Sullivan, who's a fairly senior foreign policy person in the United States government and specifically in Hillary Clinton's camp at this point. And that Sid Blumenthal effectively had like a bully pulpit in matters of national security and foreign affairs. Well, I mean, to push back on on that slightly. So first of all, I would say that what I found weirdest about his emails is actually his email address, which uh, included a couple little letters, W-H-O-E-O-P. Why would you have an email address with those letters? That's because those those are part of the letters for the official White House staffer's email address. It'll be like mark.lebovich at who.eop.gov. Try emailing me there, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, plagiarism. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> plagiarism. Yes, always with plagiarism. And a second thing, though, is that my sense is that 
everybody who worked at state, everybody who worked in the White House with Hillary Clinton would see an email forwarded from Sid Blumenthal and would immediately like nod and trash it. I don't think anybody was taking any of his advice like but super seriously. But some of seriously. her responses, Annie, were we should follow up on this, please Absolutely. circulate. She might I have mean, been, but this is like, this is but a she's the Secretary of State. The Secretary of no, State. no, I, I understand that. But in terms of actual policy influence, my sense and my sense from talking to people, I'm is, not look. I'm not saying Sid Blumenthal was crafting national security. Right. But he had, I mean, he had the Secretary of State forwarding around intel that he'd gathered from either clients or on the street or from just, you know, the Sid Blumenthal orbit. Yeah, and I'm not saying that it's it's not weird, and I'm not saying that he obviously, very few people were getting that kind of response from her, right? I'm just saying that that I think it is acknowledged that he was not... I don't know. Well, you could sort of see the eye rolls. I mean, yes, you know, that's from, what I mean. You know, for however, sure. but not from the Secretary of State. Right. I mean, I from Jake was, Sullivan. From Jake Sullivan. <laughs> yeah, who is a nice guy by all accounts and, and probably was eye rolling politely and didn't put the eye roll and convey it in the email itself. But I mean, look. When Hillary Clinton was asked about this specifically the other day, when when she actually broke her no question um, rule and actually took some questions from the media, she was asked specifically about this. And actually, if we have a clip, we could actually go to it. I think we do. I think we must. Let's take a listen. This is when Hillary Clinton first started taking questions and got one about Sid Blumenthal. I have many, many old friends, and uh, I always think that... uh, Uh, It's important when you get into politics to have friends you had before you were in politics and to understand uh, what's on their minds. And he's been a friend of mine for a long time. He sent me unsolicited uh, emails, which I uh, passed on in some instances. uh, And I see uh, that that's just part of the give and take. When you're in... When you're in the public eye and when you're in an official position, I think you do have to work to make sure you're not caught in a bubble and you only hear from a certain small group of people. And I'm going to keep talking to my old friends, uh, whoever they are. What I thought was incredible about her answer was that she basically said, I, look, when you get into this job, you go into a bubble, okay? And you have to work hard to actually get differing views outside the bubble. And the fact that she would cite talking or emailing with Sidney Blumenthal as emblematic of going <laughs> outside the bubble yes, was exactly. a headache-inducing moment and absurd to the nth degree and, you know, frankly made me sad. But I thought it was a striking and sort of uh, interesting window into her worldview. When you guys are in Washington, what's been amazing about, you know, email gate or whatever, server gate or whatever we're calling it, is how much it has brought out of the woodwork all the Clinton loyalists that we thought had sort of faded into the sunset. I mean, everybody but Mark Penn basically is Lanny <laughs> it's Davis. It's a matter of time. Whose <laughs> name should I live on in infamy? You know, they're still around. They're still in the orbit. They're still emailing with they're the making Clintons. making so much money, too. And I guess that for, for your, you know, for the people who are looking at or trying to understand what a Clinton presidency would be like. I think that's what causes the yes, shudder, right? Completely oh, agree. wait, they have a new logo. She has a Scooby van. She's taking she's having small roundtables. But at the end of the day, is it and there are a bunch of Obama people working in communications and in other areas. But is it really going to be different? It, it is the crushing sameness that so much Clintonism evokes. It, it is the. Oh, this movie again and again and again. And it never changes now. In, in fairness, it's not their fault that they're the Clintons and this is their point of reference and they keep coming back. I mean, they're to be lauded for their resilience and absolutely no one is denying 
her, you know, the right to pursue, you know, her career as as she is now. But it is the kind of echo to the past that could be a real, real problem for her. Can we talk a little bit about who she might face? Because I know we, we before this podcast began in the highly coveted pregame session that will be available to a few exclusive. No, it will never be available. <laughs> Annie. We were talking about Marco Rubio and the fact that there is a, a flurry of coverage, some in the, the highly regarded New York Times, suggesting that Marco Rubio may be the GOP nominee and that there will be a very, very big problem for the Clinton campaign should he be that nominee. Right. I think this is this is all a little bit preemptive. So notably, the meme that has come forward is that Marco Rubio would be an unusually challenging uh, candidate for her to face. And I think that this is probably like not quite correct in my mind. Rubio still has a lot of, I think, issues with his public presentation. I think that there's a real question as to how much of the quote unquote, and I hate this term, the Latino vote he will actually bring along given that he holds the opinions about immigration reform that he does. More to the point, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense to me to think that he would be a uniquely difficult candidate for her to face. But I'm interested what you two think. I was surprised. I mean, dramatically surprised. It's not just the New York Times. Peter Beinart mentions basically the same. Yeah, all of a sudden this is everywhere. And look, I mean, did everybody I I watched the interview that Marco Rubio had with Chris Wallace on Fox a couple weeks ago, wherein he fell all over himself and was pressed by Chris Wallace at Fox about his position on Iraq and whether or not we should have made it. And it made Jeb Bush look like the artful dodger. I mean, he was terrible. And I think about Marco Rubio in high pressure situations and he folds like a a house of cards. I mean, he seems like a, a nice guy. He has an incredible story. His parents have an incredible story. And I think that makes us feel good about America and the Republican Party. But as a candidate, I just don't see it at all. Do you, Mark? No. It, well, by the way, for this segment alone, I'm going to go by Marco, not Mark. I'm just going to add an <laughs> O to my name. Um, just, I, look, just for the record, I, you know, we don't even we want to use this. I think, look, Marco Rubio has had a good quote unquote month. Historians will look back at you know, May of 2015 and say, hey, Marco Rubio had a good month. He raised a lot of money. There seems to be a lot of excitement about him around, certainly around the GOP. But I do think that, and I, and I think that some of the reports that there's anxiety within the Clinton world about him are probably a bit premature, if not, you know, overreaching. But I do think that he does evoke a kind of you know, flashback to the Obama days, meaning 07, 08, when Hillary Clinton, the established candidate, someone who, you know, might feel that, you know, who could be more prepared than us is all of a sudden usurped by someone they never thought they would take seriously. I think they might be overcorrecting in this point. But but look, I mean, Jeb Bush hasn't gotten the traction to be like the sort of presumptive front runner that his brother was 15 years ago at around this time. Right. And so, you know, Marco Rubio seems to be doing a better job filling the vacuum, at least in the last month, in a way that maybe Scott Walker did in April. I mean, I think there'll be other flavors of the month. But I mean, I think the fact that, that he, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of opposition research going on within Clinton world. In fact, I know there's a lot of opposition research within Clinton world, I would imagine they'd be derelict in their responsibility if they were not. And I think that, you know, there's probably about six or seven candidates that they, you know, think could give her a real run for her money. And there's a lot of money. And who's conducting that oppa research? Sid Blumenthal. All right. (laughs) Full circle. Moving on to another contender. Senator and 2016 wannabe Rand Paul shook up his own party this past week by staging a kind of filibuster. Some are calling it a folibuster. 
TM, over the issue of whether to reauthorize the mass collection of phone data under the Patriot Act. It's not really surprising anyone anymore that Rand Paul will buck his own party and take stances that don't conform to partisan labels. But what we want to know is, is Rand Paul for real? Or is this just a carefully calculated maverick path to the GOP nomination? Or maybe it's both? Who wants to start? Is he for real? Yes, he's for real. Is he for real in a sense that he will get more than 15% of the vote? You know, it remains to be seen. I mean, his big challenge is going to be expanding the base of Ron Paul voters, which, you know, was good for about 8 or 9% of the vote you know, four years ago and eight years ago, to, a, you know, a larger coalition that could conceivably win him a spot, you know, in, if not the nomination, a very, very, you know, formidable spot in the race. I, I think what is interesting when you're here in Washington is whenever Rand Paul does something like this faux labuster, TM, there is a sense of how dare he, how dare he break the rules that we operate under here in Washington. And, and frankly, he would say exactly. I mean, this is exactly the kind of, you know, shaking up of the normal dynamics of Washington that I'm here for. So, I think it's kind of refreshing in some ways. I actually think he does mean it. I think this is very much in line with the ideology that, that he has adhered to. Now, is there a political calculus behind it? Absolutely, because he's a politician and, and he's probably a much better politician than his dad. But, you know, I'm always amused by the how dare you-ism that, that pervades the Republican and, and, frankly, the Washington establishment, you know, when something like this happens. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that he is absolutely a true believer on these issues. I think he is beyond cynical reproach in that he really believes this. And if he were king for a day, he would absolutely do what he could do to, to shut the NSA down on this issue, to change the Patriot Act. In terms of him as a politician, I, I again think that he really does actually, you know, sort of walk the walk on this more than I was thinking about him versus somebody like Paul Ryan, who, for instance, like says that he wants a smaller government, says that he wants to cut taxes, says that he wants to cut the size of government, but never actually explains how he's going to do it. I don't think that you can take that kind of like sort of this is just a cynical thing. You would never actually implement this if you were in office. You wouldn't be able to and apply that to Rand Paul. But, you know, this was kind of grasping. I thought it was sort of an obvious thing to do. This happens all the time. And whenever it happens, uh, there's inevitably some sort of jeering from the peanut gallery about it because it's, it's just such a transparent way to go about it. You're, you know, you're taking up everybody else's time for something that may or may not happen and for sort of explicit personal gain. Well, and as, as a result, the Senate was thrown into complete disarray. It's Kentucky and Mitch McConnell versus Kentucky and Rand Paul, and they have Kentucky to come. Violence. Kentucky on Kentucky. <laughs> but here's, here's what I'll say. And I and I actually, you know, we, we covered this story quite a bit yeah. on, on MSNBC. And we had Mike Lee, who, for those who know Mike Lee, is not a frequent guest on MSNBC, <laughs> coming on to talk about this. You have the and personal I, friendship with him right. that allowed you to get Look, him. And we were very happy to have him on to talk about sure. this. But the reality is, I don't think that this is a strategy for the GOP nomination. I think this is a strategy for the general. I think this is Rand Paul trying to have this coalition of young, excited Americans who are skeptical of government overreach, who may not necessarily fall into party buckets. And this is one of the ways he does it. I also think it is completely cynical political maneuvering because in recent months, Rand Paul has really angered the libertarian supporters that he had, let's say, last year by changing his position on everything from foreign policy to some domestic issues, including, you know, reproductive rights or gay marriage, issues where, you know, the libertarian path is quite clear. But Rand Paul, because he has to make nice with party elders and find a path to the Republican nomination, has really foregone his roots. And there was, I mean, you talk to libertarians 
And I do a lot. Uh, and they've been very, very skeptical of the trade-offs he's made. So I feel like he went public, you know, on this in a way that was not particularly useful in, in terms of legislating. When is any filibuster necessarily useful? But was totally designed to get some some coins in the bank with some of the folks who used to love him and have grown, I think, maybe a little bit cold. Well, well, but it could actually be very useful legislatively because he actually could kill the renewal of the Patriot Act. Well, right. No, totally. Yes. So, no. I mean, and, but, and kind of ha- like they're winding down the Patriot Act yeah, so, or, I mean, or the provisions, the section two. Well, I won't get into the provisions of the Patriot Act. Oh, please Act, do. Some of the <laughs> provisions the that are most yeah. reprehensible to folks who want to see a reform of the NSA surveillance policy. Yes. I mean, there, there's a huge political element to this, but I also think that the isolationist-civil libertarian strain of the electorate that he would appeal to conceivably, you know, a lot of it does theoretically reside in the Republican Party. And I mean, these are votes that even a year ago when it looked like less of a national security or maybe a less sort of foreign policy interventionist campaign election, I mean, this actually looked like a bigger and more formidable coalition for him. But I think a lot of it has maybe eroded because there's been seemingly more of an appetite for intervention, you know, within the party. I think that's right. And I think it's worth stepping back to say that, in my mind, Rand Paul is never going to win a general election. His ideas are hugely out of step with what your average American and presumably your average swing voter is going to want. In in my mind, he will never win. And so I think it's worth thinking about him as being actually somebody like an, you know, an Elizabeth Warren figure whose job it is to make other Republicans. Yeah, exactly. To make other Republicans change their opinions on things and to influence legislation that way. I think that that's probably you know, openly part of what he's trying to do. Do you think, do people in Washington like Rand Paul? Do people talk about him in, in any sort of particular fashion? You know, it's funny. He kind of comes off as like a little bit of a weird dad. <laughs> I think he's kind of like a little, like he's sort of a jerk, right? He, it's interesting. He's irascible. I, I would go both ways. I like him because he says crazy stuff to reporters. Well, he didn't say crazy. He actually seems really, really rude to reporters, especially yeah. women reporters. I mean, there, there's that. I mean, I don't think that's a Washington-specific perception that's grown up around him. But look, I, I do think that the old paradigm of our politics, you know, which basically says that you know, no civil libertarian perspective can exist within the Republican Party, not to mention no Republican can talk about things like sentencing reform, appeal to young voters, talk to, you know, African-American audiences, go on to like go to UC Berkeley, things like that. I think that people in Washington in particular, because we're so intrinsically conservative and and conventional, sort of look askance at that as just opportunism. But look, I, I think that He's gotten a fair amount of you know resonance there response whether whether it translates into Republican votes in a primary setting is another question entirely. But no, I think Washington is inclined to look down on anyone who dares break the paradigm and who you know breaks the rules that we're all accustomed to living by. And on that note, we're going to go to our speed round section, which we call "If I Were in Charge." Something that Mark is prone to say throughout the podcast, but now it's a dedicated space <laughs> for him to outline it's exactly. Space. It's a safe space <laughs> to be a megalomaniac. Uh, no, it's a safe space to talk about something that you or some things that you would do if you were in charge. Quickly, let's start with you, Mark. Well, if I were in charge. I was thinking about this the other day. I was driving around in the car and I was flipping around on the FM dial as I'm wont to. And 
I heard a song that hasn't been around for a few years, but it was by Natasha Bettenfield called mm. Unwritten. You know that Betting. song? Yeah. 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 I yeah. thought I Blast think from the past. If I were in charge and I were running the Hillary Clinton campaign, which would be problematic from my employment standpoint, but if I were running the Hillary Clinton campaign, <laughs> uh, it'd be problematic on a lot of levels. I would make that the theme song. It is a very, very inspirational theme song. Maybe it <laughs> caught me at the right caffeinated moment behind the wheel. Maybe I was properly medicated. Maybe my kids were enjoying it. <laughs> for the, once. For once. But I thought that that would be a really, really good song. And I remember, if you remember like in 08, Howard Wolfson said, that he quoting that, Howard Wolfson, quoting Howard Markley, Wolfson, quote the Wolfson. Uh, well, he, no, he said that he knew that campaign was in trouble when they had like some supporter contest wait, to vote on their song. Where is Howard Wolfson? I don't know. He, How have we sure. not heard from Howard Wolfson? I'm sure <laughs> he works for Bloomberg. He's doing fine. If you're looking, but if, he's a Clinton. I mean, okay, just saying. No, he's, he's down in the bunker with Blumenthal doing he made the point exactly. That, he, you know, he made the point that the campaign in 08 was in trouble when. I forgot what l- really lame theme song they picked. Now, not that Unwritten by Natasha Bettenfield is the picture of non-lameness, <laughs> but I think that at least based on my reaction in that caffeinated, medicated moment, it would have been a very, very positive song for Hillary Clinton to – her campaign to use in their uh, rallies. Do you have a private theme song for yourself? I do, but I don't like to talk about it. Oh, <laughs> yes, come on. I have several that I, I use <laughs> when I do my – my morning exercises. <laughs> that beautiful, perfectly calibrated ratio of carbs to protein. <laughs> Annie, if you were in charge. So this is something that Mark and I were talking about as we were coming in during that private pre-time, which is about the fact that the Clinton emails and the Clinton disclosures, the FOIAs against the Clintons, and the government transparency requirements that she has had to meet have given us a lot of a really close look at the market for paid speaking in Washington, which is it is this honeypot that so many people have their fingers in and they all get paid so much money by industry groups, by lobbyists, by businesses, by universities, by hedge funds, by who knows what else. It is, com- And I just wrote a story about this. It is so unbelievably opaque. Nobody will talk about it. For most people, there are no disclosure rules. And in many cases, it's still a conflict of interest, especially if you come back into government. Anyway, so I found it was just fascinating. Companies are spending, I mean, I'm estimating, but it's got to be like billions of dollars a year at this point on this. It's a huge racket. I think it's trillions, actually. Trillions. Yeah. Our entire national entire, economy is made up, up of like Uber drivers and people who give paid speeches. <laughs> so if I were a queen for a day, I would have some period of mandatory disclosure for consulting and speaking after you came out of office for a couple of years. I like how you changed that to if I were queen for a day. Yeah. Good on you, Annie. I just totally forgot what I was going to say if oh, no. I were in charge. I, t- I was going to try and write it down, and then First I forgot. First of all, you are were, in charge. Yeah, you are in charge. Were you going to reveal your personal theme song? I was not, <laughs> but I. I'll, it, it's Jamiroquai, Virtual Insanity. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> there you have it. But if I were in charge, I would make Jeb Bush declare the fact that he is actually I found out yesterday that Jeb Bush Super PAC has been making robocalls to people in Iowa. It is outrageous that he is not officially running for president yet. He even said it as much. I would get the what is it? Who's FEC? Is that the person? Yeah, that, FEC. That, that's the if I were the if I were in charge, I would get the FEC to investigate why Jeb Bush has not officially declared his candidacy. It is out. The whole rules governing super PACs are outrageous, but he seems to be in particularly flagrant violation of them. And 
That's what I would do. He's just taking the temperature. It is just fact finding with those robocalls. He is running that rope as long as he can. (laughs) Hey, Alex, actually, while you're in charge, actually, if you have a little bit left over, could you take those paid speeches that Annie was talking about and actually throw a few my way? Yeah. Because I really haven't gotten a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah, what I I meant to add that anybody who wants to Did we add that this town is available in paperback (laughs) and in e-readers? And they have very expensive. And we're talking about the Leibovich book, not the Sid Leibovich Lowry. No, we're not. Washington's newest consultancy. Mm -hmm. And that's it for Podcast for America. Our producer is Mike Volo. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Please let us know what you think of the show and of our choice of walk-on music or personal theme songs. You'll find us on Twitter at Pod for America. Our email address is podcastforamerica at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend, a neighbor, a relative, someone. And subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It helps other people discover our show. For Annie Lowry and Mark Leibovich, I'm Alex Wagner in New York City. We'll talk to you next time. And thank you, America, for listening. I break tradition. Sometimes my tries are outside the line. to not make mistakes but I can't live